Hey, welcome to The Late Set. I'm Nate Chenin. I'm Greg Bryant. And oh boy, this is the Late Set version that you put on a car trip, okay? Yeah. <laughs> We've got our end of the year episode just for you in a super size. That's right. If you've been waiting for an extended take of The Late Set, this might be your episode. <laughs> Get your popcorn, buckle up. That's <laughs> We're right. going in. Oh, man. We've got a great chat with Allison Miller, drummer and composer. Oh, my goodness, we had fun with her. And uh, we're going to remember the year that uh, was 2023. The music we heard coming into this episode Mm -hmm. was a track from Jason Moran's album, From the Dance Hall to the Battlefield. This is his tribute to James Reese Europe, the trailblazing bandleader, composer. um, And Harlem Hellfighter. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I wanted to bring us in with this is that this is the music that was in my ears as we turned the page into 2023. Jason, basically, it was a surprise New Year's Day drop. And maybe I should call it a stealth attack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I did a piece for Morning Edition where I spoke to Jason and explained what this album was. And that piece actually aired on January 2nd. So it was literally how I began this year is Mm -hmm. sharing this music. But the other reason I bring it up is because the message in this album really set a tone for us, at least for me this year. And that's not only because it's music that came out of the conflict of war, and sadly, this was a year when we spent a lot of time hearing news from the battlefield, but also because Jason uses James Reese Europe and his story as a kind of portal, mm-hmm. you know, and really makes a point about how much this bravery and vision and execution continues to lead us. It's not in our rear view. Right. It's actually our headlight. Yeah. 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 The music that James Reese Europe made is motivating Jason to sort of push forward. Mm -hmm. And that's a really powerful thing. It's something Jason Moran does very well. And I think with this project, he did it exceptionally well. It's party with a purpose. Mm. He's reminding us where we are and the spaces we inhabit have their own history. I purposefully avoided this album as long as I could because the bandwagon are serious influences on me. I love trio music. I love the intensity of each and every note counts uh, for not just a musical reason, but a spiritual reason, a societal reason even. And I wanted to be in the right headspace to be able to take this work in uninhibited. Mm -hmm. And when I did, oh boy, it was a deep river, but it always felt good. There's some of the most heady, brainy players that can be analyzed left and right. But at the end of the day, to their core, they're blues guys. Mm -hmm. They're soul musicians. Uh, They're trying to wake us up to this new thing that's happening now of, yeah, man, this music is not just about the notes. There's a context for why we congregate. And if you miss the point, you can't miss the point. It's in the title, you know, from the dance hall to the battlefield. So, yeah, I think Jason has really zeroed in the best he's ever done at making that ancient to the future argument that you're talking about. Yeah. And to that point, he is really insistent on the idea that as it's become a vogue to talk about Afrofuturism. Yeah. Jason says, yeah, that's cool, man, but that's not limited to Sun Ra. That's not limited to 
Parliament fuckadelic. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about James Reese Europe as an yeah. Afro- Afrofuturist because he is pointing the way, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that's that's a it's a sort of counter argument. Um it comes out of Jason's convictions. And there were a couple of other statements this year that reminded me of that intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to shout out Aaron Deal's recording of Mary Lou Williams' Zodiac Suite. That's a good one. Um, this album, it has shown up on a couple of year-end best lists, which I love. For me, this was a, a story that kept developing throughout the year because Aaron was here in Philadelphia. He performed this piece with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Right. Our producer, Alex Arif put together an episode of our Philadelphia Orchestra in Concert program based on the local performance of this piece. Mm-hmm. But the recording features the Knights along with musicians like Nicole Glover. And it is so wonderful to hear this music. Aaron has really gone deep and he understood that Mary Lou never got a recording of this that she was happy with. You know, the the piece was too hurried. She didn't have the resources to really carry it out. Mm -hmm. And so in a certain way, this record is finally the realization of this piece as it was intended. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really important statement. The work outlives its composer. It's infinite. Mary Lou's spirit is everywhere. And for Aaron Deal to have the insight to bring it forward and the sacrifice to bring it forward. Aaron Deal can write his own suite and be amazing in this era, but he did write to tribute Mary Lou as he did. And that also has me thinking about another, well, tribute project, but living music project for Mahalia with Love from James Brandon Lewis. These are tunes that I grew up with, hearing them in church services specifically. Um, You could not get away from Mahalia Jackson's spirit her sound, but her repertoire. I mean, this is a musical language. And to use a tone like James Brandon Lewis, who, from my ear, definitely is steeped in Albert Eiler. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the confusion about Eiler could be wiped away if people were maybe more familiar with the language of classic gospel music and hear it from that perspective, not just some, you know, fringe out jazz thing. It's more than that. James understands that, and he says, hey, I want to put the microscope on someone that you need to be talking about. Uh, You've heard of Mahalia Jackson, but have you really heard her music? Well, we're going to make sure Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you know some Mahalia Jackson here. Yeah, and he has a core understanding that Mahalia was one of the great live performers in any medium in the history of humankind, (laughs) you know? we talk about the fervor and inspiration and intensity of someone like John Coltrane, mm-hmm. someone like Albert Eiler, and and these legendary transporting performances that almost feel like an out-of-body experience. And, you know, Mahalia Jackson did that. Mm-hmm. She did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, this is the year of the drummer, Nate. I got to say. All right. I hear you. You know, I mean, look at these band leader drummers. I mean, not since the days of Art Blakey and Elvin Jones and Philly Joe Jones, maybe to a lesser degree, have we had a strong collection of leader drummer composers that have set the tone for a given period of music. They are changing the landscape of the sound from the rear, steer from the rear, I call it. (laughs) Well, they're not always in the rear these days. But I know we've been talking about this throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Just like, man, have you heard this one? Have you heard this yeah. one? It's always a good year for drummer band leaders in this music. But this year in particular, and some of that 
has to do with a, a few really prominent examples. So why don't we just toss them back and forth? Lightning round. You know, sure. here's a record that I think a lot of people have actually undervalued because it is so solid. Jonathan Blake's album. Oh my goodness. On Blue Note. A banger. It is. It really is. Yeah. He had a previous album with his band Pentad that was well received at the time. Mm-hmm. Homeward um, Bound. Yeah. And this one is in a certain way more of the same, which I think might be why it's been a little bit underrated. But it's so good. I think it's mm-hmm. better. I, I, do think too. It's, I think it's even better. I do too. And it's uh, a, a great illustration of what you can do when you are the kind of musician straddling generations. You mm-hmm. know, Jonathan Blake plays with his elders. Yeah, he does. You know, he spent a lot of time with Kenny Barron and people like Dave Holland. And in his band, he's got. Joel Ross, Emmanuel Wilkins, you know, and bring this, the older spirit and the the up-and-coming spirit mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. active dialogue. More than anyone else, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this band combines that cerebral thing and the visceral thing. Mm. Let's drop the needle, if we can, right now on Groundhog Day from this new record, Passage. This is the Jonathan Blake Pintad on the late set. See what I'm talking about? You remember that melody. Right. But there's so much groovy goodness happening yeah. underneath. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of groovy goodness, that, uh-huh. that phrase that <laughs> phrase leads me to another drummer band leader who had a, a head-turning statement. And I know you really like this record. Mm-hmm. Joe Farnsworth. Oh, yeah. His album. Oh, yeah. Um, which is named after a Harold Mayburn tune, right? That's right. Man, right before I left New York, I ran into Joe Farnsworth. I think we were at Smoke. And he's like, yeah, man, I don't know. Like, I'm all about the swing. It's always time to swing. That's his catchphrase, right, everybody. Right. But I'm swinging with this new energy, and I'm really listening to this generation behind me in a way that I was never afforded the time to do it before. You know, my heroes, this is Joe talking, my heroes are Cedar Walton and, and Billy Higgins and Roy Haynes, and he calls this long list. But, man, Emmanuel Wilkins, mm-hmm. and he just starts shaking his head. Mm-hmm. And Kurt Rosenwinkle, and I know you and I have been watching Rosenwinkle interact a little bit with Farnsworth, but Farnsworth has got this blowing album, that's what I'll call it, with these juggernaut forward-thinking cats that is squarely in the tradition, but it's got this edge on it mm-hmm. that will get by you if you if you don't pay attention to it. But, oh, my God, let's listen to... Two-Way Street. This is a Julius Rodriguez composition from this album, In What Direction Are You Headed? What I love about this is... Farnsworth has, I think it's fair to say, been pigeonholed. Yeah. You yeah. know, and Unfairly. some of that some of that Unfairly. is is um some of that is unfair. Some mm-hmm. of it I think is fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, unpack, unpack that for me. Well, you know, as you say, it's always time to swing. Mm-hmm. He has been the go-to drummer for 20 years mm-hmm. or more, right? For mm-hmm. a kind of modern sort of hard bop that 
is so solidly rooted in the the, the mainstream tradition. Mm-hmm. It is a swashbuckling, swinging, like leaning forward vibe, and I love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And he's so good there. Oh yeah. But you don't think of him interacting with the sort of that that part of the musical evolution where things are really rapidly evolving. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like, I, in my mind, Farnsworth has long been somebody who excels at a language that is already established. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, but the exciting thing and the thing that uh, is the sleeper factor in this whole record is just the title of that song, Two Way Street. Right. Hey, right. man, mm-hmm. can Emmanuel really bring it? Is yep. he this esoteric cat that can't really play tunes? Nope, he can do it all. Yeah. You hear it on this album. Can Kurt Rosenwinkel do the traditional thing with the sound and scope that we've come to associate him with? Oh, yes, he can. Yeah. What about Julius Rodriguez touring with Super Blue, the, mm-hmm. the Kurt Elling and Charlie Hunter outfit? Oh, man, he swings his ass off. Yeah. And you hear it right here. So it's Farnsworth saying, hey, these cats can deal. And it's those cats saying, hey, man, Farnsworth deals. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. And there's also um, that bringing together. Oh, co- yeah. The, 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 the convergence of energies. I also hear that on an album that's a little bit more left of center here. Mm-hmm. Casa Overall put out a record called Animals. I never seen the hate as great as jealousy. There's never enough to make us pleased to see that he got Casa is, he is a great drummer who can do that swinging straight ahead mm-hmm. thing. He's yes, he mentored by Billy Hart, mm-hmm. Jerry played, Allen played too. with Jerry Allen yeah. for quite a while. And he loves that. That is a part of him. But he's also a producer and an MC. Yes, he is. And has really thought carefully about how to make an album. You know, there's so many jazz and hip hop hybridizations. Yeah. And I love a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But Casa's doing it from the inside. He's really thinking about how these two musics can create something new on a metabolic level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's bringing the energy of an independent hip-hop producer to the bandstand. And he's bringing the sensibilities of an improvising musician to his Pro Tools unit. You know? (laughs) So so it's all integrated. And, And so this album is a really great illustration of all that you can do when you have that breadth of understanding. He's the serious musician that doesn't take himself too seriously. Mm-hmm. There's almost this yeah, well, built-in yeah, sure. playfulness, but don't get it twisted. <laughs> he can deal, like you said. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he wasn't the only musician who can deal on all those levels who made statements like that this mm-hmm. year. You know, as we've talked about, Marcus Gilmore, one of my favorite drummers, yep. um, he collaborated with the aforementioned Jason Moran yeah. and Blank Forms on right. a sort of music concrete electronic record. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually hit me to the fact that Jeremy Dutton put out an album. Houston in the House. Yeah. Yeah, his debut recording as a leader. Uh, it's a gem and a jewel and deserves more ears and eyes. And we, we enjoyed him with the Vijay Iyer trio down at uh, the Exit Zero really Jazz did. Festival. And so we know that he is a terrific drummer, yeah. but you sort of uh, hit me to the fact that he's also a conceptualist and a composer and a band leader. Mm-hmm. Another drummer, composer, band leader who really stretched the canvas this year was Kate Gentile, who put out a three-disc set on Pi Recordings called Find Letter X. And wow. This is a, a project featuring Kate's compositions, 
I think almost exclusively, yeah, or, or maybe maybe all of them are Kate's compositions for a quartet that includes Matt Mitchell on piano and Jeremy Viner on, on tenor sax and, and clarinet, Kim Cass on bass. And anyone who is looking to hear what the, the very leading edge of small group composition sounds like, wh- where it's like maybe at the far edge of comprehension <laughs> in terms of the complexity okay. and the execution. Yeah. You know? This is really a head-spinning mm-hmm. kind of statement. And I know that our friend J. Michael Harrison has played some music from this on his program on the bridge here at WRTI. So I just wanted to be sure to acknowledge Kate. I'm going to talk about the guy, though, really quickly for me who won 2023, if there's any such thing as winning a year, Brian Blade, two albums this year, one from his Life Cycles project with vibraphonist Monty Croft and a few holdovers from the Fellowship Band. And then there was a new Fellowship album this year, also King's Highway, that mostly flew under the radar. Nate, you wrote about these for NPR. Uh, You heard them on Evening Jazz here at WRTI. But I just want to just zero in on all of the productivity that has this language and sound in one of our foremost composer drummer creators Mm -hmm. and to tribute somebody like Bobby Hutcherson in the first album uh, life cycles is no small feat because yeah, you're playing some of Bobby's tunes, but you're adding original tunes in Bobby's spirit. How do you do that without coming off as half cocked or cheesy or not all the way? Well, this album is on 10 from me, and if you hear tunes like Live by the Sword, it's got Bobby's spirit, but it's got a heavy dose of Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, really inspiring. And paired with King's Highway, which is one of the best statements, I think, by the Fellowship Band. Agreed. And the fact that Brian Blade took part in a couple of live events that were among my high moments of the year, one of which was a reunion of Joshua Redman's Mood Swing Quartet at the Newport Jazz Festival. Our friend Christian McBride was the person Mm -hmm. who put that together, and I'm grateful to him for that because it was, man, that was something. And various tribute statements to the late, great Wayne Shorter, who we'll talk about a little later. Mm -hmm. But obviously, Brian was as close to the source when it comes to the spirit of Wayne, especially in this century, as anyone. But yeah, why don't we hear a, a, a bit of, of something from Life Cycles? Right? I'm into because, that. Because that's, I know that's the album. I mean, that's in your top three, right? It's number one. It's number one. And this was a hard call to make. But I find myself revisiting this particular song over and listening to what it's telling and teaching me, mm-hmm. not just musically, but about life. This is Live by the Sword, Brian Blade, Life Cycles. But we're not finished. This list of drummer band leaders is longer and longer. (laughs) But for good measure, because this guy certainly got some play on my show, and you had a lot to say about him too, Tyshawn Sori. Yeah, Tyshawn had himself another year. Yeah, he did. (laughs) (laughs) Another big one. Um, Rarely have I encountered a musician who was more a force in motion than this gentleman. And this year saw the premiere of Beholding, a piece that he created 
on commission from Gerard College. Um, it also saw the release of this album continuing with Aaron Deal and Matt Brewer. Beautiful album within the piano trio tradition, but very much a an in-the-moment experience as well. Right. And Taishan also collaborated with people like Tack Ensemble and Yarn Wire and Alarm Will Sound. And he's so busy in the new music classical space. Mm-hmm. But he's also still like playing with a lot of people and like very much circulating as a drummer on the scene. And so he's really just this uncontainable presence. It's almost unfair is what it is, (laughs) because I think about young musicians coming up and at a given position. Okay, we want you to be able to groove like drummer X. We want you to be able to write commission works like drummer Y. We also want you to be able to swing your ass off like drummer Z. It's just not fair. Yeah. And this guy has everything. He has it all. And this new trio project couldn't be a better uh, excuse to get the entry point into his work. And you know what's funny? Of the four tracks on Continuing, he actually does that Harold Mayburn tune, In What Direction Are You Headed? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, this is a year for directions mm-hmm. <laughs> and questions. Yeah. But, you know, I just want to add that back in November... Our associate general manager and dear friend Josh Jackson and I were in New York City, and the two of us went to the Village Vanguard to hear the Taishan Sori Trio. Mm. And this was easily one of the standout live experiences that I had in 2023 because he pushes the trio to work on the edge of control. Yeah. And we've mentioned Aaron Deal already in this show. Mm -hmm. This is a pianist of exceptional control. Mm -hmm. And so to nudge him out in that way creates an incredibly satisfying tension. It's the opposite of somebody just like banging. Right. Uh, When you have someone who is able to to just be like on the tightrope and you feel that the thrill of that, yeah. along with that continuing lyricism, it's really special. You know, I have a special spot for trios, you know, with Keith Jarrett being unable to play in public, and we may get into this later, but uh, the passing of Ahmad Jamal, mm-hmm. you know, my ears are open for what's the next iteration, what's the next concept that's going to arrest us, not into fandom, but into... Um, an evolution of that language. Right. And Tashan may be on the cusp of something special with uh, Aaron Deal in the piano chair. Yeah, I think he is. I, I think the two of them have, have forged a really fascinating bond. And, you know, Tashan already has deep relationships with pianists like Vijay Iyer. One of the most anticipated releases uh, early in the new year is the next trio album they have with right. Linda Mahon O. Oh. And that was another standout performance I saw this year, the three of them at the Big Ears Festival. And so, yeah, it's really special. And you mentioned Ahmad. Of those four tracks, one of them is in Ahmad Jamal composition, and another one is a Wayne Shorter composition. And so this album continuing actually was, for me, kind of a healing experience this year. I can see that. You know, because I spent a lot of time listening to Wayne's music, to Ahmad's music, and these gentlemen left us at the end of a long, full, productive life. But you still mourn their absence. Yeah. And in addition to listening to their music performed by them, mm-hmm. I also turned to this Taishan Sori trio recording because it was it was encouraging to me to think that the music really does live on in the hands of others. Um, and the amount of inspiration that they provided to Taishan 
I relate to that. Yeah, some wonderful blueprints here, and they're able to shift around and just soar, really, yeah. on all of these tracks. Let's hear a, a taste of Celeritus as performed by the Taishan Sori Trio. You'll, you'll hear some of that iconic Amajamal rhythmic bounce, but in a new register. Houston is always in the house by way of New York City. Kendrick Scott released Corridors this year, a streamlined project, something that he wrote during the pandemic. And Kendrick has really uh, breathed new life into this trio language. And coming from the drummer's perspective is particularly captivating. Yes, there is air, there is wind in this music, but there's this propulsion that will not be denied. Walter Smith being the front line, the only <laughs> front line member mm -hmm. here. I saw these guys before I came to Philadelphia when they were testing this music at the Blue Note, and I was on the edge of my seat. And I think the album does a really good job of representing what they do live. I just hope that there's more performance opportunities for Kendrick in this configuration mm. because um, I think the lyricism might lead others into this um, pianoless, guitarless mm -hmm. band arrangement. Again, Corridors is the album. Let's drop the needle on the first song from this record, What Day Is It? Again, this is drummer Kendrick Scott. Kendrick Scott. Well, he is always such a melodic composer and drummer, right? Mm -hmm. I want to shout out the fact that Kendrick Scott went home to Houston. He did. And presented a piece called Unearthed, which was a sort of multimedia chamber composition memorializing the Sugarland 95. Yeah. Um, so really important social history and a sense of conscience mm -hmm. in his work. And this is something that Kendrick Scott has in common with our guest this episode. I like that. Um, along with the melodicism, mm -hmm. a sense of historic understanding mm -hmm. and a sense of what our obligations are to each other as people, as citizens. Mm -hmm. um, Allison Miller is thinking about that too. And we got into it with her. So why don't we jump in to our recent conversation yeah. with Allison Miller? Allison Miller, we want to welcome you to The Late Set. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm excited. We are looking back at 2023, and when Greg and I were comparing notes and thinking, who do we want to talk to about this year in music, um, you were a name that very quickly came up. And so I want to begin by congratulating you on uh, another great year of music making, and in particular, the album Rivers in Our Veins, which came in for some justly deserved acclaim this year. It was an album that I kept returning to, and uh, what a beautiful statement. So congratulations. Thanks, Nate. I feel, yeah, I feel good about it. And it's been a big journey making that record. And 
some time passed in the middle of making that record where we couldn't quite record as many folks experienced. So it feels really good to finally push that project up that steep hill and get it out into the world. It feels really good. This year also began with your sound in our ears. Uh, Greg and I both really loved this Joe Laurie album, Acrobats, that you made with Joe and with Linda Mahon O. Oh. And, uh, and so, I mean, that was, a, I think, a January release. You know, we've come sort of full circle on the, the Allison Miller <laughs> appreciation train in 2023. It feels, so it feels really good to have you here. Yay. Yeah, it feels, wow, thank you. I feel honored. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think about, man, Allison can make a record with anybody she wants, but musical family seems to be really important to you. I think about Todd Sikafus and Jenny Scheinman and Boom Tick Boom in general. Tell me about Musical Family and why it's important on this project to have your cast with you. Yeah, you know, I think I, I might have learned that the hard way for me throughout my career because, you know, I think many young musicians go through a phase where they want to maybe... I, I should get this person to play with, or I should do this, and I should do that. And one of the things that I'm enjoying about this new stage of my life and career, you know, being almost at that half-century age, is that there is really no should for me. I'm just kind of doing what I feel is where the art's taking me, or my creativity's taking me. And I'm super appreciative of those long, long-term musical relationships that feel like family. At times, it's not easy. At times, we butt heads. But the end product feels so genuine. And I'm really honored to have this long relationship with the members of Boom Tick Boom. And I think that each of them, each person in that band is such an individual and there's never a moment with any of those musicians where they are phoning it in. Never. There's, it's just 110% art, heart, uh, spirituality, fully invested. And I think in particular with this project, because we went through such a process of lag time, in a sense, because we premiered Rivers in Our Veins January of 2020. And at that time, we're like, great, now, like, in a couple months, let's go into the studio, you know, and then next thing you know, there is no studio. And it really took a long time, especially because half the band lives in California. So, and none of us were willing to fly at that time. So it just took a really long time. And everybody just felt so fully invested after that first tour, because we literally got into a 15 passenger van, nine of us. And we're not in our 20s, you know, we're, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it takes a lot to get all these people in a van together. We got in a van in January, drove all the way up to Lake Placid and premiered this thing and then went all the way far, as far south as Richmond, Virginia. And we did it all in like eight days. And we literally also traveled with tap floors in the van, as well as an upright bass, all of the gear. And so I think by the end of that process, we felt like an even tighter family and probably needed a little bit of band therapy. But uh, then we had COVID, which <laughs> kind of <laughs> felt like therapy. And um, and yeah, I mean, it's those long-term relationships, you know, and someone like in particular, I, I always think of uh, Jenny Scheinman because Jenny takes what I write and she 
she doesn't even really run it by me. She just changes things. And I totally trust her. She trusts me. And she makes it better, you know. She, of course, is improvising and, and, and I'm doing that. But she's also sometimes literally changing my notes. And I'm totally cool with that. I'm fine with it. It's great. Yeah, that, wow. that level of commitment and buy-in and expression, is it's really evident. And it, I think it's the thing that struck me most about this album, almost from note one. I put it on mm-hmm. and it felt... It felt so like familiar in a good way, you know. It was like it was like a hug, and it's Jenny, it's Todd, it's Ben Goldberg, and then also more recent relationships that you've cultivated. Like your bond with Carmen Staff is incredible, you know, and and then the incorporation of the tap dancers, which in a project like this can sometimes feel like okay, we're now we're going to do this thing. But it was so yeah. thoughtfully and beautifully integrated that it felt entirely and completely musical in the context of this album. You know, like it's just another element in the musical matrix. And so all of that was really impressive to me. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I, I from the very beginning, when I called Claudia Raharjanato, who's one of the tap dancers and the choreographer for the live show, my first statement to her was, I want the tap to feel like it's just part of the band. Mm-hmm. And partly why I called her actually originally was because she's also a singer and she uh, reads music. She's a great pianist as well. So she was really able to just have a music stand out on stage in the early rendition of the piece and just be looking at music and reading and tap dancing at the same time. So I really think of the tap dancers as part of the band for the live show. I think of the videographer as part of the band because he's improvising as well. And yeah, it's like a yummy percussive goodness. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is great. Now, as a drummer, have you always had an affinity for tap dance? Because there's certain drummers that really vibe with that. I know Shelly Mann was an important figure for you and he was plugged into that has tap dancing always been part of the picture for you yeah definitely tap dance and in general dance altogether I grew up dancing I grew up tap dancing my choice of recreation as a teenager was to go dancing I grew up outside of Washington DC and that's what we did we went clubbing (laughs) DC go 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 swing so that was what we did. And, and we had house parties. My dad was an audio engineer. So I had this amazing stereo system in my basement and my parents let us have dance parties down there. And um, those were pretty wild. I mean, at least my memory of them is they were pretty wild and pretty fun. And that's what we did for fun. We danced. And I've always felt that connection to the music and dance. And, you know, just recently I was working with, um, not working with, but I was on the same bill with an African dance company. And the woman was explaining to me that in her native language, there is no difference between the word dance and music. It's the same exact word. Mm. And that is like the light bulb went off for me. I was like, yes, that is what this is. You know, no matter what, even for me, when I was growing up, discovering all these beautiful subgenres of this music we call jazz, uh, you know, I was listening to a lot of Ornette and listening to a lot of Ed Blackwell, just especially my early 20s when I first moved to New York, I was obsessed with Ed Blackwell. And even to me, even the stuff that was without pulse was completely danceable. 
And it's been a, that's been essential for me to connect dance and music always. I knew there was a reason I, I liked you besides the drumming. My cats are Ornette and Blackwell, so I I, I, I dig now. Yeah, hey, this yeah, is literal exactly. cats. <laughs> that's <Exactly>. incredible. Yeah, <laughs> we had a. I used to have two cats named Herschel and Lester. You mm-hmm. know, for wow. for uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> happening. Here. That's yeah, happening. that's right. <laughs> now, I want to talk about. Um, the veins, and you mentioned family earlier, and I'm thinking about the human family. As I've gone deeper into my roots as a black American, I've also found that I do have a small percentage of uh, native blood. And when we talk about your record, Rivers in Our Veins, and specifically the displacement of a people away from uh, water systems, rivers and, and water, it really resonates with me as I'm doing some research for a musical project next year about displacement via the interstate system, what it did to black and brown communities in the 50s and 60s. And as a secondary survivor of that, I know what it means to be cut away from food and essential goods and live in a second-class situation where communities is still cobbled together somehow, but the ravages are very much felt and apparent. And although that is part of my story, I don't think I'm the only one that can tell that story. We need people to be involved. We need um, the human element to come through and to be told so that it doesn't happen again. So I really want to ask you, why Rivers in Our Veins? What attracted you as a human being to this story and to be able to put it to music? Mm. This all started with a grant that I received to write this piece. And they had asked me, well, what what's your topic? You know, and... I often go by my gut. I feel grateful that I'm able to go with my gut at certain times. Other times, maybe not so much. But, but uh, I just had, it was just like the rivers, waterways, water just popped into my mind. And part of that is because that's how I have been for, I'd say that maybe the past five to seven years, been approaching the drum set, actual as a drummer. When I practice, I'm constantly exploring ways to sound more like water. And for me, that's a particular challenge that I keep meeting headfirst. And so water's always on my mind. Nature, mimicking, like biomimicry, mimicking nature through music is always at the forefront of my artistry. So um, when I landed on rivers, I then had to narrow it down, and I chose five grand east coast rivers and all of those rivers i have a personal connection to whether it be that i grew up on that river like the potomac river the hudson obviously the susquehanna i've spent a lot of time on as well the james river i lived in virginia for a while and so all of those rivers i have a personal connection to but where i landed with my research was that waterways are vital to communities and making sure that our waterways stay healthy or or become healthy is really all about local DIY, like doing it yourself, taking care of those waterways through riverkeeper organizations, through voluntary efforts. And that really touched me because of family, because of community, and because a lot of these local communities, and it, these can even be within an urban environment, because oftentimes the water quality is obviously the worst in an urban environment because of stormwater runoff and um, industrial toxins. But a lot of times those local communities are the ones that still rely on the rivers for their food. 
And because of the toxins and because of the stormwater runoff, they can no longer fish. They can no longer eat those fish that they're catching. And there are many communities that rely on this. Not every community can go to a local pool to go swimming. When I premiered the piece in Maryland at the Strathmore Theater, we worked with the um, Potomac Riverkeepers Network and the Anacostia Watershed. And in my research with them, I interviewed all of the couple of the folks that worked for those organizations. And one man in particular, I'm forgetting his last name now, but he grew up on the Anacostia as a kid in D.C. And when he was a kid, that was their source of food. That was their source of recreation. All the kids swam in that river. They didn't have a local pool. They couldn't afford to go to a private pool. And so for me, it's that connection between humanity and waterways, our watersheds, ecology, that is so vital and so important. And what I think, and I think this also ties into what you mentioned about the construction of interstates and highways, that's also gotten in the way of people connecting with their rivers. Because oftentimes, you're just, you know, someone gets up, they have their coffee, they get in their car, and they drive to work, and they drive across the Delaware River, but it doesn't even register that there's a waterway below them that's actually the reason that city exists that they're driving into, right, to work. And so there's this symbiotic relationship that within this piece, I'm subtly, you know, without lyrics, trying to convey, you know, hey, we are connected to our land, we are connected to our waters, we need this, we need this for travel, for existence, for survival, for food, for drinkable water, you know, all of these things for, for, for joy. (laughs) Yeah, as, as someone who lived on the Hudson River for 20 years, and 10 of those years in Beacon, New York, where I would run into Pete Seeger in the in the local grocery store, you know, this made so much intuitive sense to me, your project and the, it felt like something that that I had experienced in my backyard. And I love that the music can express what you're saying without recitation or, or song lyrics. It embodies what you're talking about. And I'm also really intrigued by your suggestion of, of trying to pull a Bruce Lee and, and be like water on the drum set, <laughs> you know, because um, that makes a lot of sense to me, too. But it's not an immediate intuitive thing. But I, I feel like I'm going to listen a little differently with that in my head. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, Nate, I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I talk to my students about that all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I was so drawn to horn players and singers. When I was a kid, I was transcribing Wayne Shorter solos and trying to play them on the drums. I've never, you know, as much as I'm like an absolute drum nerd, you know, like I will talk about rudiments and all of the drummy things all day, I also... When it comes to expression and expressing myself, I want to sound more and more like a singer on the drums. And water's connected to that, right? Because singers can sound like nature more than anything, right? It's actually coming, it's embodied within us. It's coming from within. It's the very first instrument on the planet, you know? And so to be able to hold a note and to express emotion, to feel a complete rhythmic sense of freedom that's what I'm trying to go for on the drums. And um, I think it's going to be the kind of thing that hopefully I can still play when I'm 
in my 80s and 90s if I'm still here. And uh, I can imagine I'll just be this, uh, probably by then I'll be about four foot, five inches. And um, <laughs> I'll just kind of be in my practice room trying to sound like water still. <laughs> As the broadcaster of, of the bunch, an observation and then a question, I really like the way you put records together. I can always find a banger, my word, that I can play for my audience to get them excited. And then I can tell them, hey, this was such and such track. You really need to check this record out. You do a really good job of sequencing, tracking, picking your musical family, and really attacking tunes that have varying moods. But there's always that feel-good dance thing that we were talking about earlier that I can always find uh, to get the casual listener even more involved in some of the more uh, depth. Um, and I think about, too, like Nate and I were talking about you and Carmen's staff. You guys can just straight up blow as well. But have we moved past, say, the All the Things You Are albums? Is it really, are we in the era of high concept works? Not just for improvisational music, but in general, I see that as the trend. Albums that have a clear delineation of this is the message that we want you to receive, although our music can be... Um, interpreted in different ways. What do you think about the concept album in this era? Well, I absolutely think the concept album is greatly needed <laughs> right now. And I think a lot of folks, a lot of my colleagues feel the same way, uh, illuminating social change through art. I mean, that is, that's the true purpose of art, I feel. And I feel that even more strongly now because of everything that's going on. It's all related, you know, climate change, political disaster, you know, uh, war, it, it, it's all connected, you know, it's all a, there's, you know, I mean, this is kind of an umbrella statement, but behind all of that is, is this word that I really don't like to use called hate. It's coming from hate. It's coming from a place of fear and hate. And that has to be addressed. We have to address. That's what artists are supposed to do. That's what we do. So I am a, a big um, advocate of concept albums, writing a piece um, that you hope can touch folks in a way that will make them think or shift the way they're thinking or think about some new things. Um, I've always loved concept albums. Track order is super important for me. I believe mm -hmm. in the long play. And I'll have to tell you, and I guess I'm in the mood to share a little personal information, but mixing this record, I'm also very particular about mixing. I work with uh, a, a dear friend. She's like a sister to me. Her name's Julie Wolf. She produces all my records with me. And she's coming from more of a pop sensibility, and I'm more raw. So we kind of meet in the middle, but we're very picky. And certain tracks on that record, my dear, poor engineer friend, Eli Cruz, who's amazing, I had him mix, I think we one song, we had him do nine mixes before we landed on the mix we liked. I'm just really picky about that stuff. Um, maybe it's because my dad was an engineer and I grew up around it. So it's important to me and track order. And But what I was going to say was um, part of the reason this it took me so long to mix this record and to figure out a track order was because in the last almost two years, I've been battling chronic Lyme disease. And part of that is because I love nature so much and I'm, I'm out in the woods mm. a lot. I go camping right. a lot. And, and one of the symptoms of this 
very insidious and confusing disease is that I could hardly listen to music. It triggered something like I would get very nauseated when I listened to music. So it really took me, I mean, I feel for Julie and Eli because they would be texting me, oh, have you decided on the track order or the mix? And my Kevin from from Royal Potato Family, my label, have you decided yet? Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, I'm really trying, but it's like I get two tracks in and I can't listen anymore. So that's another, Mm -hmm. I get a little uh, verklempt even talking about it. But that process was really difficult for me. So to hear that you all say that you like the track order and you think it tells a story means a lot to me because it was very difficult for me this time around. Wow. Thanks yeah. for sharing. Talk about a talk about a difficult set of symptoms for a musician like yourself, you know, just to to mm. I mean, what an affliction, right? Yeah, it's it's a tricky one, you know. I mean, um I teach a lot. I teach at the New School in Manhattan and I teach at Peabody Conservatory. I spend a lot of time in very enclosed spaces with young drummers who like to play loud <laughs> and they, yeah. <laughs> a lot of them don't quite have that subtle control of their bass drum yet. And whoo, that low end, I'm way better now because I've gotten the help I needed. But before I really knew what was going on, I would think, oh, my God, I don't think I can handle another boomy, loud bass drum in an enclosed space. I think I'm going to I think I'm going to have to go to the bathroom and throw up. <laughs> but I, I laugh about it now. But in that at, in that time, it was pretty rough. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Cheers and, and, and strength and health to you. I, the, the album means even more. Thank you for sharing that uh, with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's And you know what? That damn tick is not going to stop me from hanging out on the riverbanks or going camping with my kids because nature is my, is my uh, savior. I love it so much. Once again, congrats on everything. Thank you for this music. It's been a, a beautiful thing to live with this year. And, and we look forward to more in the new year great i i really appreciate the both of you and um it makes me feel so good that that you're listening to this music that we every single person that was involved poured their heart into so thank you Thanks to Allison Miller. What a great chat. Again, the album is Rivers in Our Veins. Definitely give this one a listen, folks. She's an incredible musician and also an excellent hang. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like I'm always talking about great shows (laughs) that I saw, which is one of the the reasons I got into this racket and always a privilege. But I'm going to turn it on you, Greg, because... You spend a lot of time in a closed room behind glass, That's sitting in front life, of a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> but you also circulated. You got out there and you you saw some stuff. And I wondered, uh, you know, one or two highlights for you from this year. I'm I'm trying to get out even more in 2024. That's going to be my slogan and mantra. We caught Yusef Days a few weeks ago. That's right. And man, I tell you, I was taking notes. There is so much that he is doing right. And I heretofore have not been a super fan, but he has my ear. He has my attention. I really appreciate his presentation. And I also am intrigued 
about the audience he draws and why. And we'll save that maybe for a later episode. But I was very encouraged with um, our generation, basically, you know, Gen X and millennial and maybe even some Gen Z there grooving to some serious improvisational music uh, on that stage. Yeah, this was a show at Union Transfer, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty big room. Uh, You know, this is where bands like Japanese Breakfast play. You know, it's it's basically a rock room. And it was packed. And it was a diverse crowd. It was a, a very energetic crowd. At one point, I know... I nudged you and we were like, this guy's got it figured out. Yeah, no, he does. And you know what it is? I just had this revelation. He brings that clubbing thing into the improvisational landscape. And I think he's hitting on a lot of people's good spot, that Mm -hmm. that feel-good thing. But there's some depth to what he's doing and his band does. Another standout performance from earlier this year was my first time, and I've loved his music for some 25 years, Cahil Elzabar. Oh, yeah. We caught him at Solar Myth, and my God, the spirits were all over that room. And it's an example of taking blowing tunes, if you will, but putting them into a totally different spiritual landscape. Yes, Cahil is a percussionist par excellence. He picks out very uh, specific characters and, and, and contributors mm-hmm. to his musical vision. But I got to say, man, I never missed the bass. There was no bass player. Never missed it. I felt the groove all night long, but I just felt these little whispers of this spirit world just coming every so often and tapping me on my shoulder and say, hey, man, we're here too. There's a moment from that show that I will not soon forget, and it was when he began to play All Blues, the Miles Davis song from Kind of Blue, on mm-hmm. the kalimba. Yeah. And he played this like extended uh, unaccompanied solo, mm-hmm. just kalimba, <laughs> yeah. just soloing through the form of that tune. And I was like, this should not be as captivating right. as it is. <laughs> like, it's like some kind of sorcery. Oh, he's that. He's that man. He was ready. Um, and man, we hung out another time and saw a really hip trio turn from Kevin Hayes. Of course, this yes. year he had yeah. Billy Hart and Ben Street with him on Smoke Sessions Records. But we saw him with Alex Claffey, Philadelphia's own, world-renowned now Alex Claffey, and Eric Harland Mm -hmm. on the drum set. And this was my first chance seeing Harland in a trio context. Wow. He can do it in his sleep, but just by proximity and, you know, schedules and timing, this was my first time seeing him in a piano trio. I was beyond impressed. And Kevin Hayes, oh my goodness, the lyricism. And taking a few turns vocally, too. Yeah, yeah. It's special. It was yeah. very special. Yeah, that was at Chris's Jazz Cafe. Shout out to Chris's. It was, what a treat to hear Kevin with Harland. That was a, a pairing that Kevin has been trying to make happen for a while, apparently. And it was it was very, very cool. And, and you're right, Claffy. Mm-hmm. Ooh, he yeah. was dealing. Yeah, yeah. There's another strain of uh, music that, was really important this year and resonated, and that, that's the big band. Interesting. <laughs> is big band back, Nate? It's, it never went anywhere. Okay, it's, okay. It is an enduring language. Yeah. Um, and as I've said a few times, 
Very few people are doing more interesting and vital things with the established big band language mm -hmm. than Darcy James Argue in his band, The Secret Society. And they've been a band to watch and follow for, you know, a little over a decade. But this year they put out a double album called Dynamic Maximum Tension. Yeah. Um, it's like a compendium of, of pieces he's composed for the band over the last, I don't know how many years. And some of them were commissions for other projects, and some of them were conceived for this album. Mm -hmm. But, man, it is an impressive performance. It's a very, very solid statement. And I, I think this mm -hmm. is an album that students of the large ensemble continuum will be returning to for some time. Yeah, I'll agree with you on that. I talked to one of Darcy's band members, uh, John Ellis, the saxophonist, mm -hmm. and he was getting ready to do a gig with Darcy on this material and he's like yeah man darcy writes some very specific things and i have to be disciplined enough to execute his vision that's a completely different discipline than being in a small band or even in the big bands of of yesteryear right um the level of specificity is what makes darcy special in my opinion and i really appreciate the constraint and then the overall energy that everybody is able to come together and resultant energies yeah. all over this album. And we're seeing more of this from musicians of a certain age, right? Where you're sort of entering what you might call mid-career. Yeah. You know, Darcy's doing a fair amount of teaching. I think that he's now one of those figures who you wouldn't call him a newcomer anymore, you no. know? He's not quite an elder, no. but he is someone who's been around the block a few times. Yeah. You know, I, I think yeah. about um, some of the other musicians we've talked about today who are in that similar place, like Kurt Rosenwinkel. Oh, yeah. You know, like there's a kind of like experience that comes with that. And I think with that, he's taken on a certain responsibility to say, you know what, this is a tradition that needs to be honored. Yeah. It's really cool that there are gestures on this album that invoke Gil Evans and mm -hmm. Bob Brookmeyer. And in, in one instance, an actual specific piece, which is Duke Ellington's iconic diminuendo and crescendo in blue, yeah. you know, saying like, hey, this is an old piece and you might think that its glory days are behind it, but this still has a lot to teach us. I like and, that. And here's, here's a way into it, you know? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, he's doing things that are super modern and feel connected to country rock, like, you know, mm -hmm. Last Waltz for Levon, yeah. tribute to Levon yeah. Helm. And things that are indie rockish, you know, mm -hmm. he's, he's a contemporary figure, but he's one who really wants us to feel connected to the past. He does. I just want to mention, too, that the saxophonist Steve Lehman he made an album called Ex Machina, which is another big band recording, but very different. One that capitalizes on his language, which is rooted in all kinds of things, including spectral music and mm -hmm. thinking about uh, overtone and microtone. And he's got people like Chris Dingman on vibraphone who really know that language, who are a part of this recording. Mm -hmm. um, but he also used some AI in the, yeah. um, in the design of these materials. And it is... A really good example of what techno-utopists talk about when they talk about AI, which is that it can actually 
bring you into some new spaces mm-hmm. and you're not surrendering control, you are actually harnessing the tools. And right. that's something that uh, Lehman did in a really fascinating way. No, I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. And I'm looking forward to maybe even hearing some further developments in this context from him. Yeah. Well, let's see. Let's yeah. see. It, it does feel like the beginning. It, it really does. We've talked about the high concept album. We've talked about big bands. Let's talk a little bit about some small groups. And in particular, there's a debut recording by a gentleman who is normally a sideman to folks like Robert Glasper and John Schofield and Nicholas Payton. Mm-hmm. The bassist Vicente Archer released his debut album this year, Short Stories. And that's really what the album is. Each track has its own individual focus. They don't have a particularly linear narrative. But man, I tell you, listening to each track at a time this year has been specifically fulfilling for me. And the album's lead single might be my favorite of all the tracks. It's called By Nashville. And it speaks about Vicente's time there. Of course, he made his reputation uh, as a stalwart of the New York scene and internationally. He wanted to get away from that for a little while and have his home base somewhere else. And he kind of had mixed results with the location of that, like Nashville is for uh, me and a lot of people. But he wrote this amazingly lyrical, groovy song that has been in my playlist over and over. And he's also on this killer John Schofield album, Uncle John's Band. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, but back to uh, By Nashville for a second. Greg, do you think you might be reading into this track for personal reasons? It feels <laughs> like it struck a certain chord with you. Hey, man, it did. It, it really did. Uh, I love I, when that happens, yeah. you know? And I love, too, that it's not just an arbitrary title that he like, right. slapped on this track. It's like, no, mm-hmm. th- this came out of an experience, and you can relate to that experience, which mm-hmm. is really cool. singer-songwriter thing in a different way to this jazz language. I think about Sko as well, and just having the best blowing album over tunes from his youth and also bebop tunes. Yeah. You really get the sense that Sko just wants to blow these days. <laughs> he and does. He's one of the best. He's one of the best yeah, albums. Yeah, well, and Schofield and Bill Stewart with oh with God. a good bass player. Yeah. And there, you know, there have been a few in that rotating chair, but that is, it doesn't get better than that for me. It doesn't. the through line going if you'll allow me to Schofield makes a guest appearance on drummer Adam Deitch's album Roll the Tape and oh my god soul jazz is not dead it hadn't gone anywhere these guys are just the latest embodiment of it Mm -hmm. and if you're looking for that B3 Hammond organ groove Will Blade has you covered and um, Adam Deitch he's just steeped in this groovy language of folks like Idris Muhammad and Bernard Purdy and you can keep calling names, but you need to call Adam Deitch's name because uh, he's got a winner in this mm. album, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
So every year around this time, we look back and take stock of departures and yeah. our, our our losses. And we've been in this jazz community for a long time, and we've grown accustomed to this practice. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to say that we're hardened in any way. We're accustomed to saying goodbye to people mm-hmm. whose music we love. But this year, we lost, by my count, three major points in the heavens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. In Wayne Shorter and Ahmad Jamal and Carla Blay, these are three musicians who really changed the art form. They in, did. In different ways. They did. Each of them starting from an early age mm-hmm. and continuing all the way to the end. Yeah. Really just producing independent music on their own terms, their own way, really never compromising. I don't think a single one of them ever really compromised and showing us how it's done and changing our language. Right. You know, it's right. it's really astonishing. Mm-hmm. And it's also inevitably, it is very sad to think about the fact that they are no longer with us, although their music is. It's true, Nate. And as I was listening to you there, I thought about two things. Although they could get, again, as scholarly as you want, they also had some really memorable melodies that Mm -hmm. never leave your psyche. And they were also very entrepreneurial. You know, I think about Carla Blay in the Jazz Composers Collective and even in Watt Records having a model for which ECM built off of her model Mm -hmm. with Ahmad Jamal, you know, for a brief time. The Alhambra in Chicago, after his success of Poinciana, he actually operated an establishment, you know, a venue. One of the first models of this long before the loft scene, long before that. And then with Wayne Shorter, too, and one of the first examples of Owning your own publishing, we take that stuff for granted. But as Horace Silver taught him, hey man, don't let the record company spoil your wares and have all the take. You need to be um, forward thinking enough to set up something for your future. Mm-hmm. And he was a model for that in all the compositions that he did, um, continued to inspire us and hopefully laid up many treasures for him as yeah. he was here. You know what else these three have in common? They were continually evolving. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about the music of Wayne Shorter, I remember after he passed, a lot of people were trying to put together playlists. Yeah. And it's like, this is a gargantuan Which task. Wayne? Which know? one? It's, yeah. uh, you know, because yeah. there are phases. There yeah. are phases and different languages. Even though he was always identifiable as a through line, yeah. his sensibility, his voice, etc. But he really did change what he created, and so did Ahmad. Mm. There are people who came to Ahmad at a different point in the continuum. So true. You know, for you, it wasn't the Pershing. <laughs> That's right. It was, you know, the sort of awakening and, and yeah. post-awakening era. Mm-hmm. And Carla Blay, too. I mean, if your favorite Carla Blay is Escalator over the hill, yeah. then you may feel differently about the late trios right. you know, or the, the Liberation Music Orchestra exactly. or the Sextets. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's really wild. Yeah. You know, these are these are really multifarious creative forces. Mm-hmm. And that is another reason to just like marvel at what they accomplished. Yeah. But they're still here. Oh my gosh. Their music is so eternal. It was written from that uh, place of revision and nothing is ever finished. And as we hear they reveal new treasures with each listen in each one of these examples. I almost don't feel like they've left us. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. delusional on my part or if I haven't grappled or grieved properly, but man, they're just with me. They're still here for me. I love that. And I love that this art form opened the space 
for them to express themselves fully, mm-hmm. you know? That's a beautiful thing that it enables that, you know? And as we heard from Allison, there are so many different ways to tap into that expression mm-hmm. within the larger framework of improvised music and, and ensemble music. You yeah, know? yeah. I think you may have the last or final Ahmad Jamal interview. It's possible. Um, one thing that struck me about that conversation was we were talking about music that he'd recorded in clubs in the 60s. Right. You know, he was happy that people were getting excited about that. But as he looked back on his life and career, the thing that stuck out to him was the things that he didn't do. Wow. And it wasn't in a sad or self-defeatist way. He was motivated. Mm -hmm. You know, he was thinking like, well, I did a lot of things, but there's some things I'd still like to do. And I think that's a kind of attitude that, you know, that shows us an example. Eternal, always growing, always shifting, always evolving. If you're still lamenting or debating, where do I need to make that end of the year gift? Give it to WRTI, okay? Click donate now on our listening app or at WRTI.org. Programs like this depend on you. We want to keep doing this in 2024, and we will with your support. Another way that you can support the late set in particular is quite simply to tell people about it. That's right. We love that you're listening truly, and we appreciate your ratings and reviews wherever you are listening to this podcast. But we also want to make sure that this is a communal conversation. We want to grow this audience for the late set. I'll say it very plain. Greg and I would be doing this if we had no audience at all. (laughs) We would be talking about the music and comparing notes and sharing experiences like Mm -hmm. if nobody was listening. Yeah. But we do enjoy it a little more when we uh, got that spirit from uh, from you. So so please let everybody know. Tell people you're listening. The Late Set is a production of WRTI and made possible by WRTI members. It's hosted by me, Greg Bryant, and Nate Chenin. The show is produced by Alex Arif. Production assistance by Melanie Spiegel and Billy Dodds. Special thanks to Jesse Cutler. Be sure to check in with us next month when we continue the drummer love with a special episode all about Max Roach. WRTI's operations manager is Joe Patty, and director of production is Tyler McClure. Associate general manager for content and programming is Josh Jackson. Bill Johnson is WRTI's general manager. Stop by WRTI.org to see everything else we're cooking up here in Philadelphia and beyond. Thank you so much for your ears. Have a safe, happy holiday. We'll talk again soon.